Hello, everyone, and welcome to Level the Field Leadership. My name is Dr. Rachel Gallardo, and I am, as always, very excited. But today, I'm just even more excited because somebody that I just, I greatly admire, who inspires me and encourages me and just teaches me still to this day so much about HR is going to be joining me. But before we jump in, I just want to welcome you. If this is your first time listening to the show, then welcome, welcome. Hopefully, you find something in this um, episode that is valuable for you, that can help you in your own leadership journey. But if you are um, a returning guest, then I welcome you as well. So just make sure that you um, subscribe and that you comment below, share this with other people that might be um, that might benefit from what it is that we are going to be talking about today. You know, I really do believe that the challenges we encounter in the work environment can't be managed if we have the right tools in our tool belt. And so the things that we talk about in our episodes can really be some of those tools that you use to help you as you grow in your leadership. Um, workplace burnout really is is so prevalent. It's so very real. And anything that we can do to reduce burnout and fatigue in our leadership roles will ultimately have a positive impact on our team. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. Um, her name is Mary Rodriguez, and she is the Vice President of People for PJMF, which stands for Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about that organization. Um, but Mary is responsible for attracting, retaining, and developing talent management to advance the mission of advancing AI and digital technology for good. Um, she is an experienced strategic leader, facilitator, learning specialist, diversity guru, and she really and truly is driven to make a living by making a difference. Um, I have gotten to know Mary throughout the years working through the faculty fellow program at the University of Houston downtown, but one of the ones that roles that she really and truly loves the most is being a mom. And um, she also has three pups as well and lives right down the road. We're actually neighbors um, here outside of Houston, Texas. So I do like to base all of our conversations around scripture. So today we're going to be focused on Proverbs 18, 15. The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge for the ears of the wise seek it out. And Mary, you are definitely full of knowledge. So I just want to say welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. So sweet. Thank you so much. So we are doing kind of a, a lightning round because you're you're smart and I want everybody to hear everything that you have to say about it. But before we dive into the technicalities of HR, tell us a little bit about you. Like where did your interest in HR management come from and, and kind of what's what's gotten you to this point in your journey? Thank you. Well, first, I'll just say um, I believe you are equally great. Uh, one of the things I really, really enjoyed about meeting you at the University of Houston downtown was your practicality with students and um, your ability to kind of hone in on really complex theoretical concepts in a textbook and make it real for students, which also in turn made it real for me. And so um, so I've learned just as much from you. Uh, and I think you're fantastic. So thank you for having me. Um, I'll say that I just fundamentally believe that nobody's career journey is linear, like that's non-existent. And the reality is that I never set out to be an HR professional. In fact, I thought I was going to be like a higher education administrator. I wanted to get a PhD. And that, that really came from me um, starting my career in higher education. But before I go there, I'll just say that everything that I am as a professional comes from where I come from and my family and my background. So I grew up in Silent Springs, Arkansas, which was, uh, maybe you all don't know, it's Northwest Arkansas, right outside of um, Fayetteville, home of uh, the University of Arkansas. Uh, and it, it's a prominent kind of poultry industry area. And the, the fact of the matter is that the poultry industry for a long time has made 
um, profits on the backs of undocumented people. And my parents were no strangers to that. Uh, Salem Springs is also a place where the, mayor, the mayorship had no term limits. So the KKK uh, were, were good friends with the mayor and held rallies down the main square. And the reason wow. I hear that is because like margins never, I never, that was always at the forefront of my identity and my reality. And as a woman, as a young professional, as a single mom, as a first-generation college student, as a member of the Latinx community, I know all too well the, the challenges of, of inequity and the impact of historically marginalized groups. And that really shaped me doing exactly as you described, wanting to make a living by making a difference. Um, and so every came to no surprise to me, like every job I had, I was always like championing for the other. Uh, and and and, and through I, what I'd like to believe, um, strong leaders, especially strong women leaders who often saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself, giving me an opportunity to showcase what I could do, led me to the world of HR. Uh, so so it, was a, it was a winding journey. It was definitely not linear. I never said, I want to be a vice president of HR. Like that never happened. Uh, and I like to share that because I think oftentimes young folks think that um, they need to do A, then B, then C, and then they will get to that thing. And that's just not how life works. Um, um, I do think there are some best practices in there that I'd be happy to share, but um, that that's really what landed me in the world of HR. And so I started in higher education, made my way into nonprofits, had a taste of the startup world, which I really loved. Um, I worked for um, a research-based uh, diversity inclusion uh, startup called Diversity EDU, um, then I made my way to the Clean Energy Buyers Association, which I was trying to solve, help solve the climate crisis through clean energy procurement. And believe it or not, it was a student, a former student of mine, recruited me to uh, the Patrick McGovern Foundation. And now I can continue the string of making a living by making a difference, but through tech and social impact. And I, I love this work. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's funny. It's interesting that you say that because I actually had a very strong woman leader who gave me my start um, really and truly on my, not just like, cause job, having a job is one thing, but having a career is something different. And she saw me nervous and terrified and fresh out of college and saw what I was capable of doing. And so um, I think that's, that's really great whenever women can see other things and younger women and say, you know what, I know that you don't see this, but I see it. So let's, let's, let's start on this journey together. So that's, that's cool that we have similarities in that area. Um, so let's just dive right on in. COVID has opened Pandora's box for working at home and working a flexible schedule and working in this hybrid, hybrid environment. Um, a lot of leaders are kind of stressing about how do I, how do I navigate that? And because I know that there's some leaders out there that think if I don't physically see my employee, then how do I know that they're actually working? So what are you seeing on your end from a recruiting standpoint? Like what are, what are um, potential employees looking for, but then how are employers adjusting to this idea of remote work and hybrid work for their employees? Yeah, no, this is a really great question because I think it's the question, the quintessential question that's been driving um, HR leaders thinking for the past couple of years, given the um, the pandemic. But I, so one, I've been, uh, I'm constantly looking for who's already figuring it out so that I don't have to do the grunt work. And I've been really inspired by the work of Nick Bloom, who um, is at Stanford and has done a lot of work around, actually, he's run some of the longest studies on remote work, uh, starting in like the 70s. And 
Um, essentially, his his research boils down to the future of work is hybrid. Um, I do work at BJMF. We are a remote first organization, and um, I have been really taken to the type of um, detail, care, and attention that needs to be had when you're working in a fully remote environment. Uh, when I was at the Clean Energy Buyers Association, we also were. Um, primarily remote, but um, had uh, recently launched a, a program called Place with Purpose, meaning we're a remote first org, but um, if leaders were going to come together on a quarterly or semi-annual basis, it needed to have purpose. And we put together the parameters with, you know, how how um, people leaders or team leaders could, could pull together an agenda that made sense, right? It doesn't make any sense to get people together if they're sitting in offices and on their Zoom screens while they're while they're in office, especially when you know you're flying people from one state to the other. Um, the the I, I will also say uh, it has exponentially opened up the talent pipelines for sure. Uh, so here recently we um, hired someone in a highly technical kind of financial and accounting space at PJMF and um, actually were able to recruit her from a large blue chip company who was having her drive two hours to the office four days a week, which made absolutely no sense to her. Wow. And um, and for us, I mean, we get to benefit from having talented folks who care about what we care about in one environment like ours. I will say it's not easy, right? Because um, engagement over the screen is not the same as engagement in person. And I, I think um, some of the ways that I've been inspired is um, even by by Microsoft's, um, you know, Satya Nadella talked about this on, a, on another podcast with a, another gentleman I love, Adam Grant, which I think you love too. Um, I call him my like intellectual boyfriend. I don't think he knows that. <laughs> he is. Um but this idea of of model coach care being part of their like people leader framework, and it's the, the 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 model that they believe to be true about what it takes to keep people engaged and retaining talent in, in ways um, that that really help kind of bring people along, especially new entrants into the organization. So paying attention to things like onboarding, right? How can we um, structure? a space and an onboarding program that pays just as much attention to what the invitation, what the first day experience looks like. Um, what is the first week look like? How do we structure connection uh, and, and points of connection so that people coming into the organization feel like not only they belong, but we can reduce the, the amount of time it takes for them to get up to speed by putting together sure on here's how we work at this organization, right? So that they can get to contributing faster. And uh, a, a really strong onboarding program can do that. Um, I, I love the work of uh, Dr. Talia Bauer, where she introduces what she calls the four C's of onboarding, um, connection, culture, clarity, and compliance. And that if you can structure your onboarding program around those four C's, you really can help kind of get people up to speed, get them connected and in tune with the culture quickly um, and, right, have fun while doing it. So mm -hmm. so th those are some of the things um, I will say, given that I work in the space, in the tech space, technology can help us. Um, so, for example, our um, communication platform is Slack, but there's a, a technology integration called Donut. And the Donut integration, you download the application, you add it into your administrator profile. And what Donut does is it creates um, 
connections between random folks at the organization and it and it asks them to create donut time which is casual time to connect and learn something about people that has nothing to do with their job and again this isn't a human being needing to say hey are you available to connect with this person or finding some some mechanism with which a human being needs to do that you can allow technology to help you um uh, one of the things I love, so during the pandemic, I was like going crazy. I was trying to figure out like, how can people stay connected? At this time, I was working for Baker Ripley in uh, Houston, here in Houston. And I was on Reddit uh, because uh, I love Reddit. And uh, someone had posted about this company that had been started by a young lady in New York called We're Not Really Strangers. And um, essentially what it is, is a card game. But the questions are so good. Like, I love really good questions. And so um, people had gone to like her website, bought her card game. And it was like at a stop. So on Reddit, I was like, does anybody have the questions for <laughs> You're not really. Right. <laughs> and so I found them and I created my own version. And you know, subsequently, I did buy the game. So I did, you know, and her sure. intellectual property, I did pay it. But um, what I did was I was like, hey, let's play this game. And you'll be surprised what happens when you put people into a breakout room two by two yeah. and you give them a really strong set of questions that ask them to share a version of themselves. So I'll give you a, an example. Like one question was, how does one earn your vulnerability? Mm -hmm. Another question is, what's the hardest pain you've ever felt that wasn't physical? Uh, another question was like, are you lying to yourself about anything? Uh, I mean, there's just some really, really, I mean, some of my favorite questions have come from this game. And um, that's how you create connection. And, and um, I've had great success using this game now in a couple of places, and I, I really enjoy it. Um, I could go on. I mean, the the, the world of work in a remote space, um, I mean, when you think about performance, it's a whole other conversation around managing individual versus team performance and leveraging frameworks um, that can really help you. And we've done some of that at PJMF. I'm really, really proud of. Yeah, I, I love that. I think too often people are they're putting on a facade, right? So we live in this day and age of social media where we have to make sure the filters are just right. The camera angle is just right. And it looks like a spur of the moment selfie, but really, I mean, let's be honest, you took 15 minutes to take that one picture, right? And too often we get so wrapped up in this, this need to portray a certain facade that little do we realize we're actually pushing people away because we're not being transparent. We're not being authentic. I know you and I are huge fans of Brene Brown and that this is like the cornerstone of what she talks about. Yeah. Like just- just be real. You know, if you're, if, if you don't know something, say that you don't know, but don't, don't pretend like you have it all together and that life doesn't have its own challenges because we've, we've all got something that we're currently dealing with. And to say that everything is perfectly fine actually makes you less relatable. Um, yeah. and makes it makes that, that possibility of building teams and building relationship that much more challenging. Yeah. Uh I've always been taken by strong women leaders, but SIBA, um, the Clean Energy Buyers Association, has a fantastic CEO. Her name is Miranda. I learned so much from her. And one of the things that she was a huge proponent and champion of was this idea of work-life integration. So not work-life balance, right? And in fact, when candidates ask me this in interview settings, I'm like, uh, my immediate my immediate reaction is like that doesn't exist. I don't yes. believe in balance because balance means that two things are sitting on equal footing, 
But as human beings, we know that that almost never happens, right? I'm either like kicking ass at work and I'm not good at home, or I'm like doing really great at home and I'm and I might not be spending as much time, you know, at work. And so and and so I'd like to think that the better description of that is the boundary. The what is the right workplace boundary? So that when I know if I'm touching up against it, right? If my boundary is that I'm going to be present for my you know, now 21 year old daughter, I can't believe she's 21, uh, because she needs my support in X area. If work is pushing up against that boundary, then I say it's time to cut work off so that I can go and do that thing. But, you know, in the next two weeks, I know I'm preparing for a, um, you know, foundation wide presentation, and I need to spend more time focused on that. I need to, you know, those those two things are not always going to be sitting on unequal footing. And so, um, yeah, the, the idea there around, um, work-life balance versus, versus boundaries is something I'm, I talk to folks about all the time. Yeah. I, I'm so glad that you're saying this boundaries are huge. Um, and I don't think that people can clearly define their boundaries until they can clearly define their values. So, you know, you're, you're talking about, let's just use your example, wanting to spend more time with your daughter. That is a, that is a high value that you hold and the things that you truly value, you'll find a way to make time for it. Oh yeah. And too often, I think people, they're not able to organize their time properly because they haven't, they haven't clearly established what their values are for that season. And that doesn't mean that that value necessarily holds true. You know, maybe in six months from now, your daughter maybe won't need you quite as much as she might need you right now. And so there, there's always that possibility of adjustment. You know, you want to, it's not a wall. It's just a, it's just a boundary, you know, and, and we need to evaluate that as leaders if we really hope to be effective. For sure. Okay. So we're talking a little bit about boundaries, which is something that I'm sure many people can improve upon, but how can, how can leaders be more mindful about, you know, maybe this area that they need to improve upon, but, but really any area in their life that they need to improve upon. How do you, how do you recognize what needs to be improved upon? And then how do you take those first steps for improvement? Yeah. Um, I learned this lesson a long time ago. Um, from someone who I care about deeply, um, former boss, she's the CEO of the Neighborhood Center, been working for her for a year. And I was intent on getting it right. I mean, I was so, I was like uber prepared all of the time because when it came time for performance evaluation at the time, it was like a very antiquated process like this form and you fill out this form it only happened once a year. And I came in with a portfolio. I mean, I was so prepared. I had this portfolio in my hand and I was ready. Like I was ready for this conversation. And I unrealistically had rated myself exceptional at everything. Like that I had just knocked it out of the park. <laughs> and I'll never forget I went to sit down with her and I gave her the thing and I had my portfolio, I was all excited. And she kind of like put it to the side and she didn't even open it. And she said, Mary, I'm going to tell you something right now. If you don't, if you, if you, if you cannot stop trying to be perfect, you, it's not going to work out here. And mm-hmm. I was taken aback. Like I was like, oh my God, like, <laughs> I'm so for this. this is not how I intended the conversation. You know how much work I did to tell you how great I am. I know. But what she taught me was that it was okay to not get it right all of the time. And that there was a beauty and a learning that needed to come from fault. What I call now falling forward, right? Messing it up a little bit so that I could learn something from that experience and iterate 
as I could I move forward. Ultimately, she did end up reading the portfolio. We had a great conversation, but it was that moment that really taught me that I had the space and place to say, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know, but I will figure it out, right? And, and that is a much more kind of vulnerable uh, a space for leaders to take. Model not knowing um, opens up an opportunity for the people around you and the people who report to you and are on your team to also say, you know what? That's something I'm, I haven't really had experience with, but let me go and figure that out, right? Sure. So 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 just modeling that that level of as a leader, I think is really important. But the, the, you know, I believe that the best people do the best, their best work whenever you can come at the intersection of two things, your technical competence and expertise um, with what you care about in the world. And the foundation of all of that is playing to your strengths. So um, Marcus Buckingham has a, a book called Stand Up um, and an assessment that has since been made free, I believe, because of the pandemic. Um, it's, it takes you about 15 to 20 minutes. This is not a personality assessment. This is an assessment of your strength profile. Um, and it gives you a fantastic like 12 to 15 page report that helps you not only create the narratives with how to describe yourself, but also ways in which you can either play to your strengths and not let your strengths become your weakness, which is also a thing. Um, I have since, uh, in the past couple of months, I've introduced the Radical Candor Framework, which I absolutely love, um, to the team at PJMF. And what I love about Radical Candor, which is the two by two that says, in order to challenge directly, you first have to care deeply. So you care deeply first, but you challenge directly. Um, but the the order of operations there is that you as a leader have to solicit feedback first, right? It's not you as a leader kind of dash, dishing out all of the, the feedback that you have to give to folks and just caring deeply and challenging directly all over the place. But it's modeling the behavior of asking for feedback first, right? What am I doing that's helpful? And what, what can I stop doing, all right? What can I do to help move your work along? And what's something that you'd like for me to not do uh, to not impede kind of your progress, right? Opening up a space for that models the fact that I, it's gonna be my turn at some point, right? To give you sure. feedback, but I want it first. Um, th those are some of the, the things I think that have really helped me. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that this is free for everyone. Um, the, I, I think no matter where, where you are in your professional journey, there's a exercise that I share with students that has been really powerful. It's been powerful for me. And this is a thing I call personal board of directors. So I ask students to kind of think about, um, ask them to close their eyes and I give them like a set of questions. And I say things like, if you were going to pursue uh, a graduate degree, but you didn't know if you wanted to do this or not, who do you call? If you were having a challenging situation at work and you need to just kind of complain about it, who do you call? Um, maybe you're lacking in a kind of technical expertise area and you need to be connected with somebody who can help you get access to some learning resources. Who are you calling? Um, if you're contemplating a divorce or a marriage, who do you call, right? right if you right. saw uh, trash TV and you want to chat about it with somebody, who do you call, right? And so the idea here is that you should be thinking about a plethora of people. But more often than times, I, I ask students to open their eyes and I say, how many people did you think of? And they'll say um, like two or three, right? And my response to them is like, it's not enough, right? We need a personal board of directors that we can go to 
that can help us navigate the plurality of our life's issues, right? Sure. And and leaders need this too. Like I need this, right? In fact, I'm yearning for a little bit of it now and that um, I, I need someone to talk to, right? Whether it's about a personal challenge or a professional challenge and the plurality of my professional challenges are different, right? I might want to talk to to somebody about, um, you know, managing upward where I want to talk to somebody else about kind of structuring performance management. Like those are two, my, those might be two different people. And sure. so creating our personal board of directors helps us as leaders um, stay intent on kind of learning from others, but also kind of um, making sure that we're not insular in our thinking. I also be able, if, you, if all those people you put on your hand, whether it was two or three, if they all look like you, talk like you, go to the same restaurants you go to, you got work to do, right? Like right. you haven't done enough work to even diversify who's influencing your thinking. So um, those are some of the tried and true kind of tools in my toolbox. That That's awesome. That is really awesome. I I wonder how many people really have a, not just a personal board of directors and directors is plural. There's an S there. So multiple people. Um, but then that speaks to what you're, what you're just such a champion for, which is diversity. And so you, you need to have a personal board of directors that are very different from you. That way you can make sure you're getting um, an accurate assessment of the situation from a perspective that is different than yours. So that way you can take that data and make the right, the right decision that you need to make. I think that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, we're kind of going through the gambit of all things like throughout the employee recruiting cycle. So let's, let's jump on recruiting. Um, what, what is going on with recruiting? Um, what are some of the challenges that you see happening in the area of recruiting and, and tell us a little bit about um, interviewing skills. So somebody that maybe is looking for a job, what are, what are some strategies that you can help them with from an interview perspective? Yeah. Um, as of late, uh, recruiting has been at top of mind. It's the thing that keeps me up at night. It's the clicking, uh, the clicking clock because um, folks in our space know that one KPI we look to all the time is time to fill, right? <laughs> so, right. Right. so trying to figure that out has been top of mind for me lately because it's difficult. It's not easy. Uh, I'll say just kind of from a very macro perspective, um, PJMF, we have upwards of like in several of the vacancies, thousands of candidates, like over 1500 candidates in, in a recognition. Wow. So it is not a lack of competent people with the right skill set to do the job. That's not the problem. The problem is the intersection between the technical competence and, and the intersection with do you care about what we care about in the world? And do you use the same lens, right, to see the world that we do? Um, and so I think that is the, the, the specialty that we look for at PJMF and that I don't, you know, knowing how to do the job is half half of the, of the, um, you know, half of what we need, but we need you to also bring a passion and care for the world and have some interest in tech and social impact and philanthropy. Uh, and so, so that, that has been um, the difficulty, right, is kind of finding folks at the intersection of those two things. Um, in the past year, you know, layoffs.fyi was fantastic source for sourcing, because we were able to talk to people who were um, you know, recently laid off, especially in the tech sector. Um, but that's kind of ramped down a little bit. So that sourcing channel has like dried up and it's really taking a lot of like 
work in communities um, where folks are already gathering. Um, Slack channels have been a great source of um, recruiting talent, things like Black in Tech, um, Out in Tech, um, Techeria, which is a Latinx community for, for folks in tech. Um, those are some of the places and spaces where people are already gathering to talk about um, and source for uh, roles in this space. Um, the other thing, though, is that we gotta get we gotta get really creative. Um, and one of the ways in which I do this is I call career slashers. These are folks who um, have worked in maybe a, part, a particular industry, or maybe even worked in a vastly different job, and decided that they wanted to make a shift. So it is not uncommon for me to meet people who are like, "I was a former educator, and now I want to be a software developer." And here's the intersection, and here's how I taught myself how to learn these skills. Um, there, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a big appetite in the kind of tech space because, you know, tech has been a place where there haven't been very many on-ramps to opportunity for folks who sit on the margins. And so, um, we're really trying to change that, not just at PJMF, but people who care about, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility in the space. Um, never underestimate the power of storytelling. Like people, it's, it's almost like sales, right? Like people don't just show up at the mall and buy your product. They have to have heard something about your product. Maybe they saw a commercial. They heard someone talk about how fantastic that product was. And all of a sudden you convert them into a sale, right? The same thing can be true for how we talk about our workplaces. Folks need to hear about the work that we're doing. Um, so for example, one of the things we do is our CEO has been um, prominent on uh, LinkedIn and started a, a kind of thought leader series called, um, it's really like highlighting the work of some of our grant partners in social impact. I send that invitation to the entire talent pool. Anyone who's ever applied for a job at PJMF, I send it to them. Why? Because if you show up to that because you care and you're interested in the space, I might be more readily, again, one, I might see you, right? Because there's just too many people in the in the ATS. But then it tells me like, hey, you, you have a true interest in the work that we're doing. and um, and it, and and it also gives us an opportunity to give them a kind of a picture and paint some color into the work that we do at the foundation. So, sure. those are some of the some of the things that I've seen prominent in um, in the interviewing space. Uh, questions I I I like to think of of a um, like my interview style hinges on on both situational and behavioral. So like imagine that you had been hired at PJMF to do X Y Z. Talk to me about how you do that. Um, so so kind of that angle. Um, and then I just ask people about, you know, what are they most proud of? What have they done that um, um, that stands out as significant highlight that they would like to share? Um, I often tell people, like, what needs to be present or ask people, what needs to be present for you in a workspace, not only for you to be successful, but to also be happy? Like, and that gives me a sense of what are you looking for in a work environment? Um, and then given where we are as an organization, we're kind of turning the corner on year three, it's a lot of building. It's also also a lot of like fast pace work. And so I want to make sure that I kind of temperature check that with candidates up front. If they're looking for a structure and come into the workplace with a manual, that's going to tell them how to do their job. It's probably not going to be the right place for you. Right. Uh, because I know that that's just, that's not the work environment that they're going to walk into. So the, the interview, uh, yeah, it's a bit of an art, not a science for sure. And, and um, I don't think there's like a tried and true methodology for like getting it a hundred percent right because I have been wrong many a times uh, but uh, but I'd like to think that the combination there both of those question types really help me yeah and I think too often people forget that an interview is not an interrogation 
it should be a conversation. It should be a dialogue because not only is the candidate, you know, interviewing the company, but the company is interviewing the candidate and there's got to be that mutual partnership. Like it, it's no different than if you go into a personal relationship, right? Like you don't, you don't just talk about, oh, what's your favorite color and what's your work style? Like you get into like the deep stuff of this person to determine, hmm, is this somebody that I want to get closer to? Is this somebody that I want to potentially date or potentially marry? And you, I mean, you've got to get into the nitty gritty of things and really feel things out and asking, asking both questions on, on both sides of the interviewing um, table, so to speak, is really important. Cause if it's not a good fit, it's not a good fit. And candidates really shouldn't take that personally. In fact, they should be thankful if they can find out this information, like, oh, wait a minute, they're asking me to do X, Y, and Z for this job. Yeah, that's not going to work for me. You find that out up front. Don't waste, don't waste time. Don't waste heartbeats. Cause we only have so many of those. Right. Yeah. And too often people think, oh my gosh, I have to make sure I say all of the right things for this job. No, you need to be transparent and authentic about who you are and what you expect. And that way, if it's the right fit, it's going to be a right fit for a long term, not just three weeks in. Oh, my gosh, I made a tremendous mistake. Yeah, I like that analogy that you use, because um, from the employer perspective, like if I'm thinking about the dating experience, you don't show up on the first date with your hair disheveled and just having left the gym and dirty shoes like (laughs) you're showing up as your best self. And so we think about how can we create a really stellar uh, candidate experience, right? That, that takes into, you know, how we communicate with candidates, um, you know, what we put into job postings, right? Um, uh, I've been really inspired by the work, again, uh, my previous group at the um, Clean Energy Buyers Association and their commitment to like, um, using a gender decoder on their job uh, postings to make sure that the words that they use in the job posting really speak to a, a kind of gender neutral approach. Um, but to also like showing up on time, I mean, simple things, right? But creating a really stellar candidate experience really bodes well with this kind of dating analogy because right. you we don't show up to those conversations with the worst version of ourselves. In fact, it's a bit curated, right? It's like, let's yeah. manicure this and make sure that when folks meet us, not only are they inspired by the work that we do, um, but but they're also genuinely connected to us as people, right? As human right. beings. So, yeah, I'm right. with you. Yep, yep. Okay. So going, going to my next topic, which is usually one of my favorite and where a lot of the quote unquote drama within an organization lies, it's the employee relations stuff. So it's the legal things. It's the, you know, it's the the very technical aspects of the law that, that HR and and leaders in general just have to be really mindful of. Um, What do you see is really challenging um, people in this capacity the most? Yeah, I would, um, I have to just given the line of work, I most immediately think about the ad. It's not an advent, but the recent chatter on artificial intelligence Um, and and, um, with the advent of ChatGPT, one of the things that, you know, most immediately when ChatGPT came out, I think it was what last November, October, November, something like that. Almost immediately, students got to town, right, to using ChatGPT to help them. Oh, I know. Um, (laughs) Right? But in turn, what did candidates start doing, right? They started using ChatGPT to to prepare work samples and write uh, cover letters. And and I'll tell you, I don't mind it, right? Like, I don't mind the, um, the augmentation to your greatness. What I do mind is a direct copy and paste 
from a chat GBT into a thing and then yes. not expect me, someone who sits in the space and has a boss who talks about artificial intelligence all day, um, to not recognize the fact that you just copied and pasted over your chat GBT thing and expect me to get really excited about your work. But like that yes. just like peeves peeves me. Oh, preach. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, but I will say um, I'm a huge fan of the tool. And I fundamentally believe that tools like ChatGPT and Bard and others are really going to help automate the things that allow for us to use our minds in the ways we should be using them, right? Doing away with mundane tasks and kind of allowing us to free up time to really think and be humans and interact. And so um, I'm a huge fan of the tool, but I think um, one of the challenges that HR departments are going to, if they are not already talking about it, is how can we embrace artificial intelligence to automate the elements of our work that, that could be automated so that we can free up the people time? And what does that mean for team structures and the effectiveness of HR departments within an organization? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, um, you know, smart folks are going to figure this out. So there's a tool called Synthesia. I don't know if you've seen it. It's made its rounds on um, social media. And essentially it is a AI-based um, like e-learning in a box tool where you have a database of avatars and what you have to do as a HR pro is to put in the content, the copy of your, of your content, right? If you're trying to build an e-learning or training of any kind and you choose your avatar, you choose your language, which the place is vast. So not just these, but a whole you know, slew of languages. And then the AI in just a couple of minutes will create a, an entire uh, training video for you. Now, when I used to lead a learning and development team, that's something I would pay hours of work for, for an e-learning developer to go into Articulate 360, build me a, you know, a training video, or I would be looking for a training specialist who, who had this skill, right? And so, so now we have tools like Synthesia who can help do what it took 40 hours to do in two hours. And, and, um, and what does that mean, right? There are implications for our work here. Um, so, so that's, that's a space I think that, um, that not as plaguing it's, it's, it's causing us, it's an opportunity really for HR leaders to really think about how, um, what the impacts are uh, in AI and HR. Um, I would, I would also say that I've been really in, inspired by the EEOC, which does not inspire me often, by the way, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but when it comes to right, like, who's really kind of come out at the forefront and said, look, these are the parameters with, that we need to put in place um, on how artificial intelligence is detrimental really to a, a workforce. And that is using um, artificial intelligence, for example, to rank applicants, interview applicants, because we know that the, the, that the builders of the technology build their own bias into the tech, right? Right. So um, one, one example of this uh, use case of this has been really just irks me is the woman who took to Twitter um, and this actually happened like well over a year ago, I believe. Uh, she and her husband had applied for a um, Apple credit card, uh, have the exact same score. Her husband gets approved and she doesn't. And she's dumbfounded. Like, why? Um, yeah. So as it turns out, the algorithm made her less credit worthy. Could it have been solely because of her gender? I don't know. But her and her husband tended uh, and did have basically same credit worthiness. They share a household income. He's approved and she isn't. 
And it's because they're using algorithms to do their their um, you know approve their approvals. And if you're operating an ATS and that ATS is ranking your candidates from ABC, one, two, three, whatever it is, um, we I certainly don't use that and, and we use Lever as our ATS. Um, but if you have that, uh, the EOC has now put parameters around the implications of artificial intelligence and in selection and in hiring. And so that I think that's something that's going to come to the forefront. Um, I'll also just say that, you know, things are happening in the world that that uh, we have to, as, as in order to be effective HR leaders, we have to stay in tune. So the recent Supreme Court rulings around um, affirmative action, higher education, th they're beginning to be conversations around what implications does this have for us in the workplace and how is this going to impact um, folks who are committed to doing um, good work, hiring diverse talent, hiring the most talented person to do the job, but being very intentional about that approach and building a diverse workplace. And I think that, um, you know, if you're not paying attention to what's happening at the federal level or what's happening in, at the local level or your local elections, federal elections, we'd like to think that the world of HR is um, kind of immune to this, but that's not true, right? These are all, all of these things happening in, in outside of the world of HR, having a, a direct implication in how we lead and how we build teams and how we build organizations. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, th those are a couple that come, come to mind for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not just the HR department that needs to be mindful of all the legal changes that are happening, but just if you're in a leadership role in any way, shape or form, you should be mindful of it because everything that happens either from a federal state or local level is going to have some impact on your business as a whole, which means that you're going to also have to change how you lead because you're going to have to change how you lead your team, because ultimately you're going to have to change how you provide for your customers. So it really and truly does have an ultimate impact. And if an organization doesn't have customers, then they don't have a business. Um, I want to back up for a second because Mary threw out the phrase ATS. And for those of you that maybe are not familiar with that, that's applicant mm -hmm. tracking system. So I just want to make sure that everybody is, is um, caught up on board with that. And also too, from a, a AI standpoint, I agree with you, Mary. Like I, I think it does have a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful tool that we can use um, for creativity and for creating different things and also getting rid of some of those mundane tasks. But I just want to caution because if somebody does lean into chat GPT or AI too much, when you're sitting across from your CEO and he or she asks you a question, you can't say, hold on, let me put that in my AI and then I'll let you know. Like we still have to be able to, to have good critical thinking and to have those interpersonal skills to have that dialogue. And then if we want to use the resources to supplement or to, to turn information out, then it can be used as a, as a tool to do so. Um, but we should never, we should never let an AI, at least in my opinion, an AI program um, overshadow our ability to use critical thinking and to use good judgment and reasoning. Cause like you said, there are, there's still bias within the chat programs. And so just sure. because it spits out the information, we still need to look at it with a critical eye to confirm that that really and truly is what's necessary. So I, I think it, there's good and bad. We just like everything, there should be a balance. So. For sure. Um, one, one tool that our technical team, you know, we have a data solutions team that is currently hiring for a software development engineer, and they use a tool called CoderPad. Uh, so instead of saying, here's the prompt, get a work sample done and send it to us, and then we can you know, get ourselves to the next stage of the interview process, they actually schedule a time for candidates to um, uh, have a live coding session inside of CoderPad. Because at the end of the day, we're not we're, let, we're least concerned with the, the thing that you created and, and sent to us as a work sample. And we're most interested in that space and understanding, tell us your thinking around why you put component this, you know, component A and component B together. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
that I think it lends itself to, to what you're saying and that the tools are an augmentation to our greatness. Not a, they, don't, they don't replace uh, our thinking, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, when I see a, a strong work sample come through, I want to talk to a candidate and say, hey, help me understand your thinking. Why did you propose this curriculum with a prompt? Tell me a little bit about experience you've had that's have you honed into that skill, um, you know, and, and so talking to people about their thought process and about how they've kind of come up with the work sample itself is a lot more valuable to me than the end product, right, um, because it helps me understand how you think, um, so yeah. That's awesome, that's awesome. Okay, so we're kind of, we're kind of coming to the close here, but just a couple more questions. Um, You've got a leader who is either new, just starting out in their leadership role, or maybe they're going to a different department or they're they're starting a completely different career. What do you say to that individual that is new in their leadership role? What do you wish somebody had told you? Yeah, I wrote I read this book uh, by a woman named Whitney Johnson called Disrupt Yourself, The Power of Disruptive Innovation. I love that book. Chapter two, I never forget, chapter two asks you to ask yourself five questions. And these questions help you uncover really your strengths. Um, And the first thing I would say is if you don't already have the language and the vocabulary to talk about your uniqueness, like each of us has uniqueness, right? Um, Strengths that are unique to us as individuals. But oftentimes we don't spend time, maybe because of cultural reasons or other reasons, right? We don't spend time kind of, kind of, telling people how great we are. And what ends up happening is that we can't translate that in the workplace. We can't translate it in an interview setting. We can't, we, we struggle with the vocabulary to talk about our unique skill set. And so the first thing I'd say is just get really in tune with what is unique to you. What is uniquely your strength profile? Mm-hmm. And then understand what's not so you can manage around it. Um, I will tell you one of the things that I like to believe got me ahead in my career is that I did two things. I read everything and I learned to write because in order to be a good writer, you gotta be a reader, right? Mm-hmm. Most things come hand in hand. And so um, <laughs> I would be just so taken aback, even when I worked in a couple of places, I won't say, and I had leaders who just never read stuff. And <laughs> there I was just kind of reading in and soaking in all of the information because guess what? The next time I find myself in a meeting with an executive and they're alluding to a particular project, I say, I know about that. I read that in your in your newsletter. I read that in the annual report. Oh, I read that in the memo we put together. I read that in the recommendation you sent around to the, to the team, right? And so reading and writing, believe it or not, is like a dying talent. And I would say, you can you can tune into some uniqueness that you know people just don't have a desire to read and write. So um, then I found myself becoming like the unofficial writing person. It's actually what what led me into taking on comms responsibilities because folks just were so afraid or just didn't they had this real hesitation with writing, um, and, and and I never did. Um, the other thing I'd say is like I learned this from my very first boss. He was the president at the University of Houston downtown. His name is Dr. Max Castillo. He's my he was one. You know when you think about your favorite boss for your entire life, he's yep. up right. If I had top three, he is up there. Um, and he's he knew so much. Was so smart. Had a PhD, and he just said, you know, Mary, I 
take this job seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. <laughs> and, he, and he meant it. Like he was always talking to me about his travels and his adventures and he loved to cook. And in fact, when he retired, um, which I was so sad, he went to this Cordon Bleu school, cooking school in Paris because that was his true passion. He just wanted to cook and he still cooks for me to this day. I love him dearly. That's amazing. Um, but I just kind of took that on as my, one of my philosophies, like take my work incredibly seriously don't take myself seriously. Um, but in saying that, I also recognize that that probably comes from a privilege that I get an opportunity to have. And I just want to recognize that I understand that there are people who, especially women, who are in spaces and places where they can't just do what Cheryl Sandberg, you can't just lean in and like, you know, get me and catapult your way to the top like that. That doesn't happen because there are some real environmental circumstances that exist for people like me. But um, but I, I will say it's something that I put in my toolbox and I just take my work incredibly seriously, but I don't take myself seriously at all. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I I had a. Um... One of my first supervisors, I was actually still working in college, um, Dr. Mitchell, and he, same way, brilliant, brilliant man on all things exotic animals. And he wanted to make sure that his students were never too, let's just say he wanted to make sure that their heads didn't swell too big. And so he, before they did clinical rounds every morning, everybody read um, a Dr. Seuss book from like a kindergarten standpoint, and he would start it off. And so when you see these just amazing, brilliant young students reading, you know, hop on pop this, you know, <laughs> a person's a person, no matter how small. And, you know, there's always these um, just key principles that he wanted to make sure that they instilled. And if you walked in during clinicals, you read those very simple pages too. So um, I agree. We, we need to not take ourselves so seriously. There's enough things going on in the world to be serious about. We don't need to, we don't need to add to it. Um, and just kind of honing in a little bit because you're in the tech and, and, you know, the social impact space, what, what, what do you recommend for people that are trying to get into this space? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that because I would I will say that um, had it not been for my former student who was hired as a recruiting manager in philanthropy, I actually don't think that I would have even thought to kind of chart out a career in this space. I was very happy where I was um, uh, at um, at SEBA, but um, I will say that I've learned a lot. Uh, in that oftentimes people get really intimidated by the tech space um, and they might think, you know, that place is not for me. And, and frankly, there's a rationalization there in that the space has been shaped for, you know, not to be conducive and attractive to folks who sit on the margins. And I understand that. But I would encourage people to get really excited about what do they care about in the world? And I'm, this doesn't mean like you have to go work for a nonprofit I and mean, you can work any place, but being able to answer the question, like, what do you care about deeply? What do you spend your time doing when you're not working, quote unquote, working, right? What drives you? I'll tell you a quick story. I was uh, doing a talk in um, at the local Sherm chapters, like um, Gulf Coast Symposium. And my my session was around like charting a career, playing to your strengths, um, uh, finding the connection between purpose and technical skill. And I was in, in the audience and there was a gentleman sitting there. He's kind of like slouched over in his chair. And he um, he, he kind of raised his hand. He's like, I have a comment to make. I get everything you're saying, but I don't think this applies to me. Like, um, help me understand how this applies to someone like me. And he's kind of like later in his career. And I just said, okay, tell me what you do for fun. 
And he changed the way he sat in his chair. He sat up and he's like, oh, I play golf. I go golf. I go golf every weekend. My friends. And he said golf and he loved golf so much. And I was like, that's fantastic. I said, don't you know that Houston is home for some of the most the golf enthusiasts and guess yes. what they hire hr professionals and if you are ready to work part-time you might find yourself being a part-time hr manager for a golf course or a golf home and 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 he just his whole face lit up and he was like oh my god i hadn't thought about that right and i was like <laughs> that's the fire that you need um and so i would say like find that thing. What is the thing that gives you that joy? And and find the intersection between the thing that you care about, the thing that you want to be new, better or different, and then your technical competence. I think that's where the people find like their quintessential career path. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. As a golfer, I, I absolutely love that story. I'm so <laughs> glad that you shared that story. That is just, that's amazing. Um, I have a heart of a teacher and my golf game is so tragic. I don't know if anybody would pay for any lessons, but. <laughs> well, I told you, you should take me and it'd be for pure entertainment because I am, I don't have a, a sports bone in my body, but I am a good time. So that's so- okay. I'll just, we'll start you off with a seven iron and putting, and then we'll go from there. It'll be I fine. don't even know what that means. <laughs> I got it. I got it. We, I'll, I'll take care of it for you. Um, well, we're kind of at the point now where I turn the floor over to you and just give you two minutes, shameless plug, whatever you want to talk about. So the floor is yours. Go for it. Thank you. Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, I uh, have loved to see kind of how your podcast has grown and the plurality of people that you have on it. And I think it's fantastic. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, shamelessly, I will say we are hiring. Uh, it is incredibly difficult to do all of the things that I've just described in this entire conversation, uh, particularly around folks with technical skill sets for machine learning engineers, software development engineers, data scientists and even communication professionals. So if you have a passion for social impact, philanthropy, responsible technology, ethics and AI, check us out, um, mcgovern.org. We're also on Twitter and LinkedIn, or I guess I should say X now, so weird. Um, And um, the other thing is, you know, I love when I can point to something that says, man, this is an example of how we practice what we preach. And um, one of the ways that I'm really proud to be able to do that is to talk about a rotational program that we're launching the second iteration of called the Rising Leaders for Equity. It's launching this fall. And it's our intention on breaking down barriers to entry into a tech and social impact industry. And so we want to hear from early career professionals who care about all things tech, operations, HR, philanthropy, public policy, even communications. And so we'll be launching that um, this fall. And I encourage people to get connected with the Patrick McGovern Foundation. Um, And if you are an early career talent, you do not have to have a degree in this capacity. But if you do, um, it's a, it's a, it's intended to kind of break down the barriers and create an on-ramp for people to make a, make a way um, in, into this space with a full salary and benefits uh, for a two-year rotation at the foundation. So I'm really excited for that program and um, currently working on the recommendation as we speak. Uh, so those are, those are mine. Awesome. Awesome. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom and for the time that you've given. I know for a fact it has plugged into other people, really encouraged, really motivated, really inspired. 
And for those of you that are listening, if you liked what you heard, again, hit the subscribe button to receive new content and to just be alerted. I do try to post on the second and the fourth Tuesday of every month. So kind of make a mental note of that. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm on Level the Field Leadership. Um, you can also follow my personal Instagram. They're kind of connected, but you can see how bad of a golfer I really am. Um, but I do try to post um, content that is consistent and related to leadership to use no matter uh, where you're at in your leadership journey or what you might be going through. And remember, you really and truly are made to be a leader right where you are, wherever you are leading. And the things that we talked about today can help you develop the roots of your leadership so you can weather any storm. Take care of yourself. Take care of your team. You can 1000% do this. And until next time.